So, welcome to uh, today's Dhamma talk in the morning. And I'm happy that we could give at least the Dharma talk every morning, even though that yesterday afternoon I couldn't give a sutta class or interviews or the Q&A last night, doing the other part of my job. But anyhow, uh, for today's Dhamma talk, someone did ask one of these very lovely questions the day before, and I couldn't really answer it deeply, it's the first evening. It's nice to talk about it a bit now. When you ask me, just, yes, we all know how the present moment awareness is important, but how actually do you do that? It seems to be such an obvious thing to do. But then again, sometimes we can't do it. And one of these examples, uh, just it taught me how important this present moment is. And I mentioned it to you several times, but it was also important because it shows you know, how to meditate and the benefits of being in the present moment. That was most important to me. You can see the enormous benefits of focusing in the present. And of course, that was the time, for those who haven't heard this story, of when I was doing my final examinations at university. And in those days, I mean, it was, they couldn't get away with it these days. It was six days of exams, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Three hours in the morning, three hours in the afternoon. Continuous. It was pretty tough. And so, <coughs> I had a good advantage. Now, by that time, I was a very, uh, you call devout, Devout not because I was telling everybody else to be a Buddhist, because I was actually practicing it, doing some meditation. And one of the things which I did at the final exams was every lunch hour, do without any food, and meditate instead for another half an hour, which I had you know, once I got back to my room, before I had to go back to the uh, examination hall. And there was a lot of stress on at that time, simply because I never knew I was going to become a monk. If I'd have known that, I wouldn't have worried about exams. But actually it was good because I learned so much from it. Learned about how to take exams. Obviously not to worry, not to be anxious. Does anxiety help the examination? Of course not. So what I did, very fortunate, uh, when I sat down to meditate, the first thing which came up in my mind was just the, the morning exam. I've often told you, like I did yesterday, that when you're meditating, mindfulness is important at the beginning, actually all the way through, but just make sure you're mindful. What is my mind aware of? What's the most important thing in my mind? And it was the morning exam, which I just completed. You can imagine the sort of thoughts which go through your mind. Did I answer the question completely? Did I make any mistakes? Could I have had more explanation? But the nice thing about it being an exam, you know that no matter what you did, right or wrong, it now cannot be changed. And that's like your past. Whatever you've done, right or wrong, or in between, or a bit of both, it can't be changed. Or when we say right or wrong, have you ever noticed that whatever you do in life, it's never wrong, it's never right, it's always in between somewhere. There's never really black karma or white karma, it's always a little bit of black karma, a little bit of white karma, it's just you know, in between. And so, with an examination, it's great. It's in. You can't touch the paper anymore. You can't fix things up. It's already gone to the examiner. Good or bad, you're done for. <laughs> and so, that helps. Thinking about your past. Whatever happened to you. You can't change it now, can you? Unless... 
you know the email address of Doctor Who. <laughs> Remember Doctor Who? Time travel. <laughs> Sometimes I thought, well, that'd be wonderful. Call up Doctor Who, go back and fix things up again. But that cannot be done. So, you have to let the past go. Thinking about it wasn't important. The other thing which I had learnt is that we always feel, we're kind of convinced if you don't contemplate the past, if you don't review it, then you keep on repeating it. And I think the opposite is true. There was an example of that in psychology. There was a, a big train crash outside of Paddington Station in London many years ago. And many people were killed, many people traumatized, even just seeing just people screaming and then dying in front of you was oh you know, it was very traumatic. And then the government did offer free counselling to anybody who was uh, concerned by that tragedy. But then, some very smart psychologist, or psychiatrist, I forget which, decided to try and review and compare those people who received counselling and those people who didn't. And they made a surprising recovery, making uh, adjustments to people, what they saw and how deeply they were involved in the tragedy, that the counselling actually did not, not help at all. The people who had just gone on with their lives and let it go, they were much more healthy emotionally. That was quite a shock. It may have been, in a place like London, that many of the people who were involved in that tragedy, especially those who were more elderly, had been through things like the Second World War, where bombs were going off you know, every day, thousands of them, and many people were getting burnt or injured. And and even my own family would tell stories of that. My mother and my uh, grandma were in a terraced house in London and the bomb fell on the house next door. So the neighbours were just annihilated immediately. As for my mother and grandma, the, so the house was just destroyed and uh, Apparently, my mother was just had lots of glass just went into her arm and she was bleeding quite heavily. But she survived. And my grandma, you know, she was supposed to be looking after everybody. She also survived. And she was a, lo you know, a lovely lady, very positive. But I do remember as a kid, every time there was a thunderstorm, and I was at her little apartment, she would stop whatever she was doing and go and sit on the stairs. She said that was the safest place in the house in those days, because the stairs were made out of stone or concrete. And that was the shelter that she'd always sit on when there was an air raid. But the way that she dealt with that, she didn't go looking at the past, trying to bring it up, she understood that this is something to learn from and to let go of. She let go of that past. And that was what was amazing to see. You know, how people I'd known dealt with a very, very traumatic past. And that was something which inspired me. I don't know what happened to you in your upbringing so far, deserved, undeserved, whether you were ill-treated or fairly treated, but however you were treated, 
just keep thinking about it. We always are told we learn from the past. But my understanding as a Buddhist meditating monk is you learn much more from the present than you'll ever learn from the past. Right now is where the action is. And one of the reasons of that is because the way we even perceive the past. We look back upon it and think it was a terrible time. But as many of you know, that so many studies were done of uh, people in London during the Second World War, and they said it was one of the most inspiring times of their lives. The fact that everybody just came together, helped one another, and people knew that you know, death could be round the corner at any time. It changed the way that they lived their lives. And it was a beautiful time, apparently. Sometimes what we think is tragedy can have a different meaning for us. I remember this story of this lady who, she's well educated, comfortable, and so she decided to do a volunteer year in Africa. When she went to Africa, oh, can I tell another story about volunteer in Africa first of all? <coughs> This uh, Australian girl decided to do a gap year in Africa and helping out in some poor areas. And after she'd done her gap year, she returned to Perth Airport uh, with a friend. This African guy hardly didn't wear any shoes, just a, a sarong, like a, almost like a loincloth around his backside, and beads and tattoos, and all sorts of implements around him. He really looked wild. And then the daughter said to her father, Daddy, I'd like, you, I'd like to introduce you to my husband. I married him. And the father took his daughter aside and said, Daughter, I advised you to marry a rich doctor, not a witch doctor. <laughs> so please, when you're giving advice to people, watch your pronunciation. <laughs> but anyway, the serious story. <laughs> she went over to um, Africa to a poor part suffering from severe drought and famine. And she got a job in one of the um, support camps. I forget which organization was running it. And she got given a job of every morning going outside the camp. And she had a number, like 20, 30, 10. And she said, you have to allow, say, 15 people to come in today. That's all we can support. Because even in the camp, they had limited means. And that was her job, to go outside with a number, just like she was knowing that those she let in would survive, and those who were kept outside would die in the next 24 hours. And when she told that story, I thought, what a terrible job that must be, that she should choose you know, who would die and who would survive, because that's all that could be done. But then she said that actually, surprisingly, it was very different. Sometimes the people outside in Africa, they maybe came from the same region, maybe the same village. And they would say, no, take her, she's got a kid. No, take him, don't take me. Their selflessness and their compassion when if they didn't get inside, it would mean they would die. It was actually one of the most inspiring things you'd ever seen. Sometimes we can judge these things, but do we really judge them fairly? In any way, apparently after she was uh, finished working in the camp, and she came back to the UK, person who was asking her these questions said, what's it like now? Much worse for me, she said now. 
now I'm working for the government civil service. That really is suffering. <laughs> A few of you nodding your heads there. I think you kind of know what I mean. What we expect to be really difficult. Sometimes we learn so much, we see you know, what human beings can be capable of you know, when they're in trouble and, and tragedies. It's amazing how people can lift up what we call their game and do amazing acts of sacrifice which bring you hope in this world. But anyway, as for you, whatever you've happened to you in your past, it's never as powerful as learning of how to deal with it in this present moment. Even if you remember it, you're remembering it now and you're adding how you look at life now to how you interpret the past. If you know how this present moment, how you can learn so much from this present moment, no matter how sick, how uh, unedible was your breakfast this morning, you learned so much from that. I remember once when my one meal of the day in northeast Thailand was just a board of sticky rice, no salt or soy sauce or anything, no sauces at all, just boiled sticky rice and a frog on top. It's one of the best frogs the villagers could find for you because you were a monk. They gave, <laughs> they gave you the best. Well, at that time, you know, I thought, wow, this is really interesting. It'd be a nice story I can tell later on when I become a fat monk. <laughs> but I always remember just some of the things you learn from experience like that. Is always pay attention no matter what you're doing and where you are. Because I remember just, I was always interested, paid attention to the classes I had at school, even like biology. I knew roughly one part of a frog from another part. Now that frog was just boiled. It wasn't fried or baked. There was no sauces or garlic or chili or salt or anything with it. It was just like a boiled frog. So anyway, I just started, you know, like many people, just eating the, the, the meat off the legs, first of all. By the way, I was a vegetarian before I became a monk, but I would have died if I'd have kept that, because that literally was not any vegetarian food in that part of time. It was subsistence farmers. And anyhow, the monk sitting next to me, he obviously had not paid attention to his biology class. This is a true story. You can't make these stories up. They're too gross. <laughs> so having got the obvious meat off the legs, we all had to start just picking at the organs inside. And this monk, he didn't know one organ of a frog from another organ of a frog, and he pressed the bladder. We still had urine in it. <laughs> And the frog peed all over his rice. <laughs> Yuck. That was the end of his meal. <laughs> but I thought, what a wonderful story that is. I like to teach that to kids in Dhamma school. To say, when your teacher at school is teaching you something, listen to it, you never know when it might come in handy. <laughs> but anyway... You let go of the past and make sure the, the present moment is the most important. And after a while, the present moment becomes interesting and fascinating. When you're eating your lunch, what do you think of? Do you like your lunch? If you do, you shouldn't be thinking about anything. I've often told this little piece of advice to, to everybody. If you're going out to lunch with somebody, especially to a fancy restaurant you pay a lot of money for, please tell whoever you're taking out to dinner 
look, this is a very fancy restaurant. Some of the best chefs in Asia are cooking here. So please, girlfriend, shut up. Because <laughs> every, <t> <laughs> every time your friend starts to talk, it's like taking your attention away from the meal you paid a lot of money for. If you went to a great concert, you know, classical music, can you talk? Can you discuss? Of course not, because then you'd miss the flow of the music. Same with lunch. So if it is a disgusting lunch and the cooks don't know how to cook things, fine, you can talk to take your attention away from what you're eating. But it's also the fact that so some people do have bad digestions. Why? It is because when you are eating, you're not paying any attention to what you're putting in your mouth. And so things like saliva, bile, all those other things which have to be secreted are not secreted. I got this little insight when one of my friends had some bad digestion. He was sent to the local hospital and they gave him one of these, I think, barium meals. And it's radioactive stuff you put in your tummy and they could find out where it goes, if there's any blockages anywhere. This was you know, 45 years ago. So anyway, when he did this, he had his appointment, they gave him a barium meal and they laid him down, had like an x-ray machine on him so they could track where the, uh, the barium was going. And it just sat there in his tummy, it didn't go anywhere. It was in the afternoon. And monks don't eat in the afternoon. The tummy shuts down in the afternoon. But the nurse realized that and said, oh, you know, okay, you're a monk, you don't eat this time of the day usually. So just said, think of your favorite food, the food you like the most. And as soon as he started even just thinking about the favorite food, then the barium started moving. Even just if you enjoy your food, then the digestion improves. But to enjoy it, it doesn't mean like eating something you're liking and talking with the person sitting next to you. It means really being here and enjoying the food which people are serving you. Then you find it digests much better. And again, uh, because as a senior monk I get to travel around a lot, I remember going to Japan once and going to this monastery called Aheji Monastery where this famous Zen monk, Dogen Zenji, uh, started. And I remember seeing videos of it. It's a very strict monastery. It's incredibly cold. In there, there is water to wash your face with. You don't want to have a shower because there's no heaters. The water at zero degrees is just you know, way close to freezing. You just have to wash your face with that as fast as you can. And just everything was really severe. When you meditate, if anybody, anybody just nodded a little bit, the master would come behind you and whack you on the back with a stick. It's really scary. But he said the one thing, you know, in... Uh, that tradition, they'd always make sure that all the monks had a good meal. They spent especially a lot of care making the food delicious for them. And the reason was because that made them healthier and they wouldn't get sick. And to this day, I sometimes wonder why some people feel you have to be ascetic, especially you. you know, eat just what you think is going to be good for you rather than what's delicious. Remember I told that story about the hospice guy? He was about to die through cancer and when he realized it didn't matter what he ate because that wouldn't kill him, the cancer would. So he indulged in all his favorite foods and he got better. And there's something really important in teachings like that. There's the joy in it. One of the other stories, oh, no, no, I tell too many stories. I just passed through it quickly. About that guy who died, 
And once he passed away, he was a Singaporean, his wife died a few days later. She missed him and they were just so close together. So that was the guy who appeared in heaven together with his wife, met by the Spirit. And the Spirit said, you are both really good people. Because you are both really good people, made a lot of good karma, I've come to show you your heavenly rewards. And there was this huge mansion on the cliffs, you know, billion dollar views. And the, the Spirit, the angel said, this is your heavenly reward for eternity, this beautiful mansion. And the guy said, someone like me or my salary would not be able to afford the, the government taxes. They said, we don't have taxes up in heaven. Something to look forward to. <laughs> and took them inside. And inside, all of the furnishings were just incredibly opulent. Even all of the chandeliers they weren't made of waterford crystal, they were made of diamonds. And it took them into the, the, the toilet, the even the shires and toilets. You know, on the toilet it was solid gold, and when you pressed the button, you know, to flush it, it wasn't a button, it was a solid ruby. And water never came out, Chanel number no. 5 came out. <laughs> And the guy said, that's how one of my salary can't afford insurance on this. It's very expensive stuff and you, know, you have to pay insurance. He said, what do you want to pay insurance for? We don't allow any burglars or robbers up in heaven. It's all for free. And they took him down to the garage, triple garage. <laughs> you've heard this story so many times, but I like telling it. Any story you've heard before, please know I've heard it more times than you have. <laughs> <laughs> and the first car was a stretch limo. I mean, a real stretch limo. Not like these tiny ones you see on the streets taking movie stars around. This was huge. So big, had a tennis court in the back. <laughs> well, the car, that is. <laughs> and the second vehicle was a, an, what's it called? Uh, go-anywhere vehicle, you know, all-terrain vehicle. You know some of these vehicles they have and you can go, you know, through the bush in it, go sort of on, uh, through water, uh, water courses. This one was so powerful, it could even go up waterfalls. <laughs> Upwards. <laughs> and the third vehicle, the third vehicle was a limited edition Lamborghini. And he's always wanted a sports car. But look, what's the point of having a sports car in Singapore? You've got nowhere to drive it. You've got speed restrictions. <laughs> and anyway, the guy, the angel said, this is for you, I know how much you love sports cars. He said, look, what's the point? I'll get pinged with a, a speeding fine straight away, probably. He said another secret about the heaven realms. No policemen. <laughs> They're not needed there. And anyway, what happens if you do drive too fast and you have an accident? You're already dead. <laughs> so, this is how he just, his eyes went wide, this lovely sports car, just for him, he goes as fast as he'd like, it doesn't matter if he has an accident, he's, you know, he doesn't change what he is already. And on the opposite side, <laughs> on the opposite side of the, uh, the house, open the garage door, an 18-hole golf course. I remember when I first made up this story, <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, that golf course that was designed by no less than Tiger Woods. And people said, how can he design it? It wasn't dead yet. But remember, he had that accident. <laughs> and he went unconscious for a few minutes, had an out-of-the-body experience, and that's when he designed the golf course. <laughs> <laughs> because this is a heaven realm, once you get the ball on the green, whichever way you putt it, it always goes in. When he goes this way and that way and that way, he always goes in. It's a heavenly golf course. 
And then he said, look at that course, look at that clubhouse. Someone with my income will never become a member of a club, of a club like this. And then the angel said, sir, you're already a member. He asked, a life member? He said, no, a death member. <laughs> And after that, he got really upset at his wife. He got angry. Stupid wife, terrible wife. What kind of wife are you? And she didn't know why. Look, you've got this beautiful mansion, beautiful toilet you can sit on and just press the, the, the button and get Chanel number five coming out. You've got your beautiful sports car and you've got your golf club on the opposite side of the road. Why are you angry at me? Sorry? Meals? Oh, no. Well, that's actually part of why he got angry at his wife. And he said, wife, wife, if it wasn't for all that health food you gave me, I could have been up here years ago. <laughs> so anyway, well, how come I got into that story? Anyway, it had something to do with being in the present moment. But any, <laughs> anyhow, we learn. What? This is something which always astounds me. Why really good people, you know, you know you've done more good karma than bad karma, you've been a good person. Why are people afraid of dying? Imagine, imagine that for one person and their partner at this retreat, the one who I select and that made the most progress, I give a prize. And the prize for this retreat will be first class tickets for you and your partner to, say, Los Angeles, to Hollywood. Ten days in not a five-star hotel, a six-star resort. Every evening, well, I might arrange for you to have dinner with your favorite movie star or pop star in the US. For guys, you can have dinner with Taylor Swift. <laughs> For ladies, you can have dinner with... I don't, I don't know people, I know Taylor Swift. <laughs> Who's the most favourite movie star? Guy. <laughs> I'm asking for help. Bad Pitt. Is he old? I don't know. <laughs> we can have a different one every evening. Have, and you have $5,000 spending money every day in the shops. Now, if I said that was your gift and you won it, would you be excited? You wouldn't be. So you'd give it to me instead. Most people, most normal people. <laughs> would not be able to wait until they could go on this amazing holiday. And they'd be just counting down the days, counting down the hours. And to, you know, can I go a day early, please? And eventually when you go, you'll be so excited. Now you're going to this wonderful vacation. At this point, I always try and make it the most best vacation you could possibly have. But then, what is better? Going on an amazing holiday, wherever you want, meeting the best people, best food, spending money. What's better, doing that or going up to heaven? Which would you prefer? <laughs> of course. I remember there was this lawyer once, very, very wealthy. When he got close to dying, he wondered, 
I spent so much time and hard work amassing all this money. And they say that you can't take it with you. Why? It's not fair. You did so much hard work making money, why can't you take it with you? So he figured out a plan. When he was on his deathbed, only a few days before he's going to pass away, he told his wife to go to the bank and with the two biggest suitcases he had and fill it with, uh, I think Singapore has a thousand dollar notes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, fill the suitcase with only thousand dollar note caches, millions of Singapore dollars. But why said he can't take it with you? He said, wait. Where my deathbed is, in the bed in my bedroom, go in the attic above and position those two suitcases either side of where I'm laying, directly above me. So when I die, on the way up, I can grab those two suitcases (laughs) and take them with me. She was smart enough, smarter than him, to actually to do that. And then when he did die, you know, after the funeral and all that sort of stuff, then she went up into the attic to check. Those two suitcases were still there, obviously. And she said, look, I should have told him. He should have put those two suitcases in a room underneath where he was laying. (laughs) I knew which way he was going. (laughs) Anyway, we'll we'll do this one. So anyway, back to the present moment. <laughs> a lot of times, if you look at the past and look at the future, they're both fantasies. We choose from the past what we want to remember. And we, we exaggerate some parts of it. We make it worse if we're in a bad mood and it actually was. If you're in a good mood, you can make it better than it was. And same with the future. We all know the future is a fantasy. You can't predict the future. I don't know what's going to happen next. I never thought I was going to talk about this this morning, but nevertheless, uh, because we can't predict the future and we can't predict the past, all of our fears about what's going to happen next hardly ever happen. And if anybody does have that anxiety about the future, Please know that great story of Winnie the Pooh and Little Piglet walking through the forest during a storm. And Little Piglet was a very anxious person because he was small, maybe. And he said, what would happen if a tree fell when we were underneath it? And that was a possibility. And Winnie the Pooh with his great wisdom, replied, what would happen if a tree didn't fall when we were underneath it? Which was far more likely. You may have cancer. What would happen if the cancer kills me? What would happen if it didn't? Which is usually far more likely. Why is it that when we look at the future, we get such a fault-finding negativity, always looking at the worst? It's a weird part of human beings. We never have that positive mind, very rarely. What would happen if it didn't? Many of you may know that Every year I've been going to this Cancer Support Association. They started reasonably small. Now they have a huge campus, multi-million dollar. And I remember when it opened, it's funded by the government, and when it opened, they invited me to their opening ceremony, together with the Premier of Western Australia at the time, just the two of us. I said, why me? I can understand the premier because you know he got the funds for it, but why me? There's no other religious people there. And this was in Western Australia, 
And then they told me that I've been going there for the last 35, 40 years, every year. And they come to monastery once a year. And they said the reason uh, they keep coming, the first time I went there, there was this lady who was in remission. She had breast cancer before, now she was in remission. But it was a very traumatic and very uh, torture for her with all the chemotherapy and surgery and stuff. And she put up her hand to ask a question. She asked, you know, I don't think I could take another bout of, of treatment you know, for my breast cancer. It's now gone, but I'm so worried. What would happen if it returns? My answer was, what would happen if it didn't come back? And that shook her. Just a one-liner, what would happen if it didn't? And she was one of the organizers of this group. And she keeps coming back every year. The best cancer hasn't come back. And she said, somebody actually spoke some sense. We always think of the worst possibility. What would happen if it didn't? And I just put something else in her mind. What would, you know, what would happen if it did come back? I put in the possibility what would happen if it didn't, which was much more likely. And you can also see that type of fear and anxiety. What would happen if it comes back? What would happen if it comes back? That worry would probably cause it to come back. When you think of the other side, what would happen if it didn't? It doesn't come back. So these were sorts of positive ways of understanding the future is totally uncertain. It's not just a philosophical, theoretical uh, point of view. It's actually a practical one, true, and it helps people recover and live a good life. So anyway, I was only supposed to say a couple of minutes about this, but anyway, nevertheless, that once you let go of the past and the future, when I was a student, what I remembered next was really quite shocking. Because at that time, I was only 20, I found out my body was shaking. Are you a nervous person? I never thought of myself as a nervous person because I wasn't looking. Yeah, it was high stress. But when I saw that my body was actually shaking, it was pretty easy to calm the body down. You're looking in the right place. One thing which mindfulness does for you gives you feedback. In other words, I could look at my body and try and relax it. And if it wasn't relaxing, I could feel straight away it was getting more tense. When it started to relax, I could feel that as well. You get feedback of your own body. And I've used that so many times as a monk to actually to heal things. One of the classic stories was when I had uh, food poisoning, real food poisoning. I had many diseases over in Thailand, you know, dysentery, real dysentery. You'd walk to the toilet, don't describe all the stuff, which blood and pus, which came out of your backside. You tried to get rid of as much as possible, then you went back to your hut. As soon as you went back to your hut, you needed to turn around and go to the toilet again. It was like constant. Interesting, for one of the people who want to know how it was cured, it was mostly eating raw garlic, a natural um, antibiotic. I didn't like it. No one came close to me during that time. <laughs> but nevertheless, it worked. But this was not dysentery, it was just a, a food poisoning. When I was in my hut, my cave, which you'll see later on, imagine you're in a cave, really sick. You can't shout out for help. No one will hear you. You're in a cave. So every few minutes, ah! Ah! It was just the contractions in the, the spasms in the guts. And I like telling this little anecdote story, especially when I've given a boring sermon and people are about to fall asleep. Ah! <laughs> it does wake people up. Sometimes, if ever you're a public speaker, it's not just you know, the power of what you're saying, it's how you say it. Ah! 
it's not boring. But anyway, we decided you know, to use your mindfulness in the present moment. It's hard to be in the present moment when it's so painful. What I did notice, stay in this present moment, come on, and be kind. That kindfulness. What is actually being kind? I learned what kindness is by what relaxes things in my body. Kindness is opening the door of my heart to it, taking away any stress or fear. And when you do that, it's amazing just how well things relax. I'm not going to give an explanation in words what kindness is. I give an explanation in what it does. And so my gut started to relax more, which meant the spasms got less intense. Only a small amount every time, until eventually the spasms just disappeared totally. And that's how I cured my food poisoning. Nothing left at all. Just relaxed it totally away. When I say relax to the max, I mean it. You've got to do it to the max. It's amazing what gets cured, what disappears, what pain and illnesses vanish. But anyhow, you can only do that if you spend more time in the present moment. Understand what's going on. When you understand what's going on and you know what kindness is, that's like a, a silver bullet for most things. And so that gave me an idea of what present moment awareness really is and what kindness is. And after doing that, then the next thing which I noticed was even more a really deep insight. You only get in this present moment into the cause of much illness and suffering in our present day society. I was exhausted. My brain was really tired. I'd just done an exam in the morning, something simple like astrophysics of the galaxy or something, all these sums and, and equations. And of course, anyone would be exhausted. But one thing I didn't realize that when you are exhausted, you don't notice it, you're in denial to your exhaustion, and you keep on going. You keep on studying, you keep on working, you keep on talking, keep on cooking, whatever you're doing. And that just makes you more exhausted. When a brain gets really, really tired like that, sometimes it goes into depression. Sometimes it goes into all sorts of other sicknesses. It goes into deep tiredness and negativity as well. Sometimes all you need is just a rest a deep rest and feel you deserve that rest and don't fight it. You're just tired. That's one of the reasons why when you come to a retreat center like this, it's not just getting jhanas and getting enlightened, it's just getting healthy, giving yourself a rest, giving yourself a break, not having to do anything, achieve anything, or meet any goals. At this retreat, I will not give out report cards at the end of this retreat. Because I did that once when I was a school teacher. At that time, they knew I was a Buddhist. I didn't sort of hide it. And class of 30 kids. And of course, if every kid was an Einstein level of intelligence, one kid would have to come bottom of the class. It doesn't mean they were stupid. It just, you know, this is the, they say the teachers were stupid by grading people like that. So anyway, I gave out the report card to this young boy, about 13 or 14, he'd come bottom of the class. Have you ever had that done to you? your bottom of the class in something. You can see just, you know, his face just went into depression. His shoulders drooped. Because oh. imagine what happens if you get a report card, bottom of the class. It's not even you feel bad about yourself. 
All the friends in the class will start to tease you. No dummy, stupid. And then when you get home and your parents see you and your grandparents, your uncles, your aunties, your brothers and sisters, you'll catch it from them too. So this poor boy had a combination of depression and fear. And I just couldn't tolerate that. I'm a Buddhist, not just a teacher. So I said to him, I said, I'm going to teach you a little bit of Buddhism, the concept of a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva is a being who sacrifices their own happiness, on purpose, deliberately, sacrifice their own happiness so no one else will have to suffer what they're going to suffer. That's you. I know you can do much better than what you've achieved in this year's exams, but you deliberately, you must have deliberately chosen to come bottom of the class so none of your friends in this, in this class will have to suffer what you're going to get tonight from your mum and dad. You've done it on purpose, haven't you? You're a bodhisattva, sacrificing your own happiness so no one else has to suffer. I'm going to go to the principal's office right now and I'm going to recommend you for the bodhisattva of the year prize at this school. Sacrifice. Like many of you looking at me, he was looking at me similarly. What a crazy teacher I've got. Praising me for coming bottom. <laughs> but at least it took him away from his depression for a moment. He laughed. And then I told him, but there's one thing I have to add. Is you're only allowed to get the Bodhisattva prize once in your life at school. Next year, let someone else come bottom, but not you. <laughs> You've done your sacrifice already. So little things like that in this present moment. You learn so much about the psychology of your own mind. How you become tired, you work too hard, you push too much. Which is one of the reasons why the beginning of every retreat, I just keep on saying the same teachings, like learn how to relax and rest. Just like that lady who slept so much in the first few days of her retreat, in the middle of the retreat, she was just caught up with everybody else. By the end of the retreat, she was way ahead of everybody else. She'd been kind to her body, knew what her body needed, what her brain needed too. I don't need to read minds, but I know that many of you uh, have overused your brain. Thought too much, strive too hard, Try to meet others' expectations, your own expectations, which makes you very tight and tired. How can you get deep meditation that way? And again, that's very clear to me. I'm very grateful to you for yesterday and the day before. Give me a free afternoon. I never told the other monks I had a free afternoon. If I did, they'd have come and give me a job or come up and talked about their problems, have an interview or something. So because it was unexpected and I never told them, I really had a free afternoon in my cave. I, I enjoyed that immensely. Enjoyed it because there was no struggle, nothing to do, nothing to perform. Isn't that just bliss? Each one of you, I don't know what job you do. Sometimes I look at Eileen, she does so much work for the Buddhist Fellowship, for Bodhinyana, Singapore. Who else for? A Brahm Centre as well, yeah. Three organisations, they're all my fault, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but when you come here, you don't do anything, you can hide. Next time you come here, you're not coming here as a retreat manager or organiser. I'll give you a different name. And just come here and just to relax. To the max. You deserve it. You work so hard. And each one of you, I don't know what jobs you do, but it's nice when you don't have to do anything at all. You can really relax. 
So after just about five or ten minutes, when I was doing that meditation during exam time, that my brain re-energized, it's like recharged it. So in the afternoon, because I was in this present moment, and just learned how to be with what's there and care for it, the energy came right back again. And the people who were with me at that time, they told me, they reported afterwards, that when I went into the examination room in the afternoon, I was the only, the only student smiling in the afternoon exam. They thought I was cheating. <laughs> I kind of was in a way, but not illegally cheating. I just knew how to relax, and other people didn't. So a lot of time, you sometimes you realize in this present moment, it's really important. This is where you learn right now. You don't learn from the past, you interpret the past. You fantasize about the future, but now this is where you learn. You learn what kindness is. When you have kindness, you can just... You put it on your, your own body first of all, you get feedback straight away. Then you can be kind to others. You know what kindness is, and the science is working. It's also, I don't know how many times people have asked me, how do you let go? They know how important it is, but to teach you how to do that, all I can do is just try this exercise, try that exercise. But be mindful and see what the result is. See if it works. I know one thing which I do to relax my own body, I think I taught it briefly in the first day, scrunch up your shoulders. Scrunch them up as much as you can. Now let go. You understood what to do, didn't you? You did it, I saw it. That's what letting go is. You stop doing things. You stop scrunching, stretching, squashing, pushing, pulling. All of that you stop, you just let go. And things relax. You learn from the mindfulness and the kindness in this present moment what letting go is. And that can solve so many problems in your life. Also, it goes way deeper than you'd ever expect. It goes into the deep meditations. Most people who've ever got these deep meditations never expected them. You're sitting there just, oh, this feels nice and peaceful. You're aware in this moment, kind. Then it gets more peaceful. The more peaceful. My goodness, this is really peaceful. And you really relax very deeply and get into some amazing states of mind. But a lot of the times, I know my own experience, but it's also what other people tell me, because I've been a teacher for a long time. Most times, actually nearly all times, you don't expect it at all. It happens when you give up expectations, give up all wanting, or judging, or assessing. You just are in this moment, and you settle down all by itself. The last teaching today. The bottle of water teaching. How can I get the water to be perfectly still? You've seen me do this too many times, haven't you? I can hold it with mindfulness and with concentration. You try that, you can never get it still. No matter how much you concentrate, no matter how mindful you are, and you exhaust yourself, and you say to yourself, I can't meditate. I tried it, been on retreats. I can't keep the water still. Just put it down. You let it go. It's not still, is it? It's moving. Letting go means also means being patient. You let it go, you just watch, 
I must be going in the right direction because it's moving less and less. You can see the progress. You don't do anything. That's the feedback your mindfulness gives you. And then it becomes perfectly still. So easy. No effort. No holding. No attachment. No wanting. You let it be. Pretty still, isn't it? That's how we meditate. Thank you. Sadu. 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 <laughs>